just a reminder, this is the very Word of God. Um, so Matthew 18, if you want to turn there, we'll finish reading the chapter, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him, to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow, his fellow servant, fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow fellow servants saw what had taken place, there was, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to you, every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So as I thinking about this passage, it occurred to me that there are quite a number of passages in the Scripture that everybody's very familiar with and have referenced a lot. For example, John 3.16. Who doesn't know John 3.16? Well, likewise, the golden rule. I mean, most of us know the golden rule. Do unto others. Even if you're not in the church, you know that rule. But one verse that non-Christians will quote to us frequently is uh, Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not, lest ye be judged. And I would contend that this chapter is one of those. That chapter 18 of Matthew is often thrown around. And it's interesting. People will say, Matthew 18, Matthew 18. And they don't mean the whole chapter. They mean verses 15, 16, and 17. Um, and I think there's a failure uh, to say it that way, to, to just call it Matthew 18, meaning those three verses. Um, and the reason is, this, those three verses aren't the whole chapter. And they're not just a, a segment out of our blue book, um, you know, or a constitution or something like that. But rather, this, this chapter, and if your Bible has section headings, um, those are man-made, they're additions, and unfortunately they slice up the chapter. And, and it makes you think, oh, maybe this was preached at different occasions. But in fact, when you read the Greek through, it's all one chapter. 
from start to finish, it's just one sermon. It's, it's one pericope, as you would say in a technical way. Um, and so it goes clear down until verse 21, where Peter suddenly interrupts the sermon and asks a question, and then Jesus finishes the sermon. Um, so before we begin, I do want to think about what is the, the, uh, the theme of this sermon. What is, what is the point of this topic? Well, I would suggest to you that it's sin, it's seriousness, and what's to be done about it. And so if you've seen the bulletin, the, the title in the bulletin, you know what I think the scriptures, this, this, this chapter teaches is to be done about it, and that is radical forgiveness. Um, but how? When? And any number of other questions that might come to mind. How, how does radical forgiveness work? So, though in the bulletin, I don't have one up here, but it doesn't matter, I... I, I put down that we're going to look at 15 through 35, and that's true. That's, that's where my focus wants to be. But I, in order to see what that is actually teaching, we have to look at the whole chapter. It is one chapter, one sermon, one pericope. Um, so let's start back in verse 1, and try to, I'll try to go through this quickly. Um, so once again, you see at the start that the disciples have been arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom, and we know from the, the gospel accounts that they did that on more than one occasion. It seems a... They, they had reason to think that some of them were, were higher or greater than others. And Jesus, in response, calls a small child over to him. And the Greek word actually just means little child. That's what it means. And how big? We don't know. Maybe it was somebody as big as Felix, but maybe it was somebody smaller, maybe one of his little brothers. And he brings him over and he sets his child in front of them, perhaps a child that could stand, and says to them, unless you are changed, you will not even enter and, and become like a child, a little child. You will not yet enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, it's interesting because the verb changed here is passive. And for, that's, for those of you who haven't had that in grammar class yet, that just means we don't do it. it. It is done to us. It's not something that we ourselves can do. That is, God changes us. So there's a lot of theology in that one short little statement. Um, but what does it mean to be like a child? Well, the very next verse tells us. Verse 4 says, Jesus is speaking of humility. To be humble like a child. And in fact, any of us who have... Uh, if this chapter is on forgiveness and sin, um, any of us have been involved in that, and that's all of us, will know that it takes a lot of humility to, uh, to forgive and to apologize. In fact, I would suggest to you that to forgive means to set aside your own claim to, on a violated right. To apologize is to acknowledge you violated God's law and considered yourself more important than the one you sinned against. I'll say that again. To forgive means setting aside your own claim on a violated right. In other words, forgiving comes with a cost. It's not free. To apologize is to acknowledge you violated God's law and considered yourself more important than the one sin. So that, that, that's a hard thing to do. That, that takes humility. And so Jesus brings this child in and he sets this child in front of him and that's how the sermon begins. We're to be like children, little children. But notice in verse 6, the word all of a sudden changes. It changes from child, little child, to little ones. And I think it's easy for us just to read and just think he's still talking about uh, little, little children, but he's not. He's changed. He's now speaking of all of us in a very real way. The word there changes, is no longer little child. It's the word that we get the word micro from. It's the word micros. And uh, what it means, uh, the commentators are agreed. Leon Morris, the commentator, says that most commentators agree that it's talking about believers who are humble. So he's, he's changed the topic. He said we need to be like little children, and now suddenly he's talking about all of us, at least all of us who are humbled like little ones. 
So if we've become like little children in humility, we're not to think of ourselves as great in the kingdom. And that is what it means by definition. But notice in verse 10, there's a very strange verse there. Um, this thing about angels. And so I'm not even going to attempt a theology on angels off of that verse, but the point of that verse is simply this. Little ones are very important to God. Whatever that verse actually is saying about angels, it doesn't matter so much as they, those angels are there representing those uh, little ones before God is what he said. Little ones in God's kingdom are very important to God. So now Jesus spends the rest of these verses emphasizing how terrible it will be for anyone who causes one of his followers to sin, one of these little ones. And he says that it would be better to be drowned in this, the sea with a millstone tied around your neck. And kids, I don't know if you know what a millstone is, but in the olden days, it was a great big, huge stone. They come in different sizes. We've seen them in Nijiang there. And they, they're huge stones, and it has a hole in the center. And so you tie that around your neck and get thrown into the sea. You're not coming back to the surface. And that would be better than causing one of our brothers or sisters to sin. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus uses an illustration to communicate how seriously he takes sin. He uses a hyperbole at this point. And some have claimed that because of the type of conditional clause that's in this verse here, that it, it is actually, uh, Jesus is actually teaching self-mutilation. But in fact, though Greek has several different conditional clauses, and this one usually has the sense of, 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 of a real sense rather than completely hypothetical, um, there's a problem with that. Um, oh, by the way, I should mention, supposedly there have been people in history, and it is believable, certainly in the Middle Ages, that people have cut off their hand or gouged out their eye, taking this too literally. The problem with taking it literally, though, is, is a hard and fast command, is our physical parts are not the source of our sin. That's not where it comes from. Three chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart and defiles a man. For the, from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. So the point is, if sin actually originated with our hand or our eye, then it would not be too extreme to chop that thing off. If my hand was the thing thought giving me the grief, to get rid of that. But that's, that's not the case. And it's been said by, in this pulpit many times by our pastors. Um, I think probably every man that has preached here has said, at least at some point, um, that we don't take our sins seriously enough. And as we read Jesus' words, it's easy to see. Yeah, I... I have to admit, I don't take it as seriously as Jesus is pointing out there. In verses 11 through 14 now, um, Jesus gives another short parable, and then he gives this parable elsewhere. In fact, Pastor Dave Reese has pointed out on more than one occasion that Jesus uses the same illustrations, same turns of phrases, these sorts of things, the salt of the earth, these sorts of things, in more than one place. Now, the, the gist of the parable or the image is usually the same, but how he's using it changes. And when Dave Reese pointed that out to us years ago, I remember thinking, now it makes sense why he's using it here or there. And we do that in English. Think about the phrase, um, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. We, the meaning of that's the same, but how we use it and apply it is used and applied in a lot of different ways. So here in, in Matthew, right here in chapter 18, he's using this unlike he, he used it in Luke. In Luke's gospel, it's talking about someone who's lost, who has not turned and, and come, come to saving faith. Here, though, this is a person who is in Christ, who is strayed, who has sinned. And how do we know that? Well, um, the context demands it, the discourse structure demands it, and then almost all the com commentators are unified on that. It's, 
when researching this uh, topic for a paper for the seminary, I started with the early church fathers, and even those guys spoke about it, clear down through the reformers and up to modern times. The point of this parable is how that we should be seeking our brother or sister who has strayed in sin. And since this is about seeking a wayward brother, the commentators through the ages, I noticed, all agree that when we seek a wandering believer, we are not to be cruel. We are not to, to seek to punish him or her. The singular intent to seeking him or her is to cause that person to, to admit their sin and win them back. So let's turn now to the, second, the middle section, starting in verse 15. And these are the controversial verses in a very real way. Um, this, this first verse, actually all 15, 16, 17, is all conditional clauses. And this one starts off, if your brother sins against you. And the first obvious question we ought to ask is, how serious of a sin is that? Um, are there any qualifiers? Um, there aren't. Uh, but um, at the very least, it has to be a sin. It's, it's not just somebody hurt my feelings or I, I didn't like something they did or something about them. Um, this isn't just an offense of some sort, but it is actually a sin. It has to be sin. And although the Greek word is the standard word for sin, there are no modifiers. And so we do we have to look in the broader context to see what's going on. And down in verse 17, you see, if you take it to the church, that person could be excommunicated. And so the commentators through the ages agree. This has to be a serious enough sin that this is where it's going to lead to. So little sins, we're to, we're to overlook those. We're to forgive each other quickly. Um, and this is a more serious sin. So if your brother sins against you, then you are to go to them privately and tell him his sin. And there are two important things to notice there. First is, it's to be in private. You're not to gossip. You're not to tell someone else about this sin. And that's hard. You know, if somebody sins against me, Jackie's the first person I tell. Well, that should not be the case. I should not be telling even her. The second thing is you're to go to your brother and point out his sin. And the Greek word here means to reprove or to re correct or reproach. But it should not be harsh. It should be like a shepherd going after his sheep. But I'm going to pause this for a minute from the flow of this right now and encourage all of us because it's hard. It's really hard to go and see a brother or sister in Christ. In fact, raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. If, if, if you like confrontation, none of us like confrontation. Even the person who we think, oh, he likes confrontation, doesn't actually like confrontation. I mean, that's just not human nature for us to like that. But if, if you obey this, if there's been serious sin against you, and you go to your brother or sister in Christ, I, I contend from the rest of the scripture that what we should expect, that this person that you're going to is truly in Christ, when you go to them, they will repent. And I have seen this actually work. I've seen it in my own life, and I know of other people where that has been the case. When, when they were confronted, they repented. And that should be the way it is. So though it's scary to go see them, go with confidence that you're obeying the Lord and going. And that's the right thing to do. And you're seeking um, to, to restore a relationship that's broken. It's how Jesus intended it to work. But verse 16 is, what if this happens? It happens that your brother refuses to listen to you. He doesn't listen to you. Then what do you do? You're to take one or two along with you. That's what the Greek says, but what are one or two, what are two what? Well, you have to read the rest of the sentence, and you see that the Greek words, it says, and this is my sort of word-for-word -word gloss of what the Greek says, by the mouth of two witnesses, or three, may be established, uh, is, is a single word, every word. 
So it would seem that the one or two that you were to take along are to be witnesses. Or witnesses of what? And that's the crux of the matter. There are commentators and theologians who claim that the one or two others uh, are not necessarily a person that saw the sin. In fact, this same uh, man I just quoted or mentioned, Morris, he says that they're not to be witnesses of the offense. They can testify only that they have tried to help the offender. But is that the biblical understanding of witness? It most certainly is not the normal English understanding of the word. If a man performs the crime and I see him do it, I'm a witness. If I don't see the crime, I'm not a witness, even if somebody else tells me about it. I'm not a witness. So if I take others with me who did not see the sin to confront the man, are they witnesses? You might say, yeah, but they're only witnesses of my confronting them. And so the question I have, is this the biblical understanding of witness? And to do good exegesis, the thing to do is to look in the broader context of Scripture. And the day that Jesus was standing there preaching, they didn't have the New Testament. He was producing the New Testament. His Bible was the Old Testament. So um, to make sure we finish in time, I won't have you turn there. I'll just read you the, these verses. But if you go and look at Numbers 35, 30, I'll say that again if you want to write that down. 30, Numbers chapter 35, verse 30. It says, If anyone kills a person... The murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. That's plural. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. And then Deuteronomy 17, uh, verse 6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And there are uh, quite a few other references in the Old Testament that speak to this. Um, the Numbers passage is speaking of murder passage in Deuteronomy that Elder John read for us this morning actually says this. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So Deuteronomy 19.15 expands the crime from, from murder or something like that to any charge of wrong. But this verse is very significant for other reasons. One is, if you read the rest of the, the, the passage there, as Elder John did for us, we see that there's very stringent treatment for those who might bear false witness. If a Jew bore false witness, bore false testimony against another person, and it was found out, then the liar was to receive the punishment that was due to the one that was accused. Bearing false witness against another person was extremely serious. It was a violation of the Ninth Commandment. But there's another significant thing about this verse, and that this is the verse that Jesus was quoting. And I've heard it said, ah, well, we're not sure that this is the verse that Jesus is quoting, but I can tell you that if you compare the Greek of Jesus' words here in Matthew to the Hebrew, or if you want to say, well, that's Hebrew, you've got to translate it. Well, let's compare it to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and you will see that Jesus was quoting this passage. This is the very verse. There are a few small little differences between... Jesus' quote and what's in Deuteronomy. But those little differences are just the sort of differences that Jesus makes in other places when he quotes the Old Testament. In fact, Peter T. O'Brien explains that these sorts of small differences between an Old Testament passage and the New Testament passage of the same is just a blending to make the quote seamless with the context. 
And we do this today in writing. If you've ever written a formal paper and you're quoting something and the, the quote doesn't quite fit into your sentence, you might add a word or something like that. You put it in square brackets so that the reader knows this is your word. Other than that, you can put the whole thing in quotes. That's all Jesus was doing. He was making it fit in the sentence that he was speaking at that time. Um, but there's one more important thing that I want to point out, and that when Jesus quotes only part, he only quoted, quoted, quoted part of Deuteronomy 19.15. He didn't quote that whole verse. Um, so it's still debated by some. Ah, see, he didn't quote the whole verse. Well, it's the Jewish, what he did was the Jewish way of quoting a passage. You see, it, we don't stop to think about it, but it wasn't until the 13th century did we get our chapter numbers and our verse numbers. In Jesus' day, the Old Testament didn't have anything of that sort. There was no reference. And so the way that they referred to things is they would choose that passage that they were talking about and choose the most salient uh, verse out of that passage, or maybe the verse that actually related to their point, and they would quote that. Um, and we even have examples of that where just one sentence is quoted, uh, but clearly a broader uh, quote was meant, meant. And an example of that was Jesus was going into Jerusalem. Um, it's the uh, triumphal entry, and the great multitudes of people that were standing there were told, saying, Blessed is he who, came, who comes in the name of the Lord. And biblical scholars, including our own Dr. C.J. Williams at our seminary, at RPTS, says that this doesn't mean the crowd was just singing that one, one, one line over and over again. It means that at the very least they were singing that stanza, maybe selection D or something, but they were singing the whole psalm or at least a larger portion of the, uh, the psalm and not just that one sentence. And you see this all through the New Testament where an important verse is quoted, and if you want to understand it, you go back and look at it. When I was studying Greek with Dr. Gam, or excuse me, uh, Dr. Kinnear, he pointed that out to us again and again. And if you wanted to know what this, this verse was meant, you went back and you studied that chapter or that passage. And that's what we have going on here. So here is an example of this. Um, uh, Jesus is again quoting... Uh, a passage, and it's just a partial passage, and it's the most relevant part of that passage. But you want to understand what Jesus means, you have to go back and read the passage that Elder John read for us this morning. So Jesus had the whole passage in mind when he told his disciples what to do on the second step of confronting your brother. The witnesses were able to verify or establish that the brother was guilty of that sin. They could actually say, yeah, I saw him do that too. When it goes to the next step, we're not, to, we're not told that witnesses go before the church. If you read verse uh, 17, there, it doesn't say they go before the church, but that is the normal procedure. I mean, it's logical. That's, that's normally what happens, and that's the point. That, yes, if, if it has to go to the church, if the brother or sister still hasn't repented, you take your witnesses and you take it to the church. So in contrast, I just want to contrast this. If one person is accusing another person of sin... But there are no other witnesses. There are actually no witnesses. How will that person be convicted before the church? The church is not going to convict them without the evidence of at least one other witness. They need two or three witnesses, the scripture says, and that's the standard. And yet some still may argue, ah, but this was New Testament times and things had changed. But had they? So let's look at a few New Testament passages. In John chapter 8, verse 17, Jesus is speaking to the Jews, and he reviews uh, the law with them. And he says to them, In your law, meaning Moses' law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. 
And then in Mark chapter 14, 55 through 64, where Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin just before his crucifixion, the chief priests are busily trying to find two people who can come and say the same thing. They needed two witnesses. So this, was, this idea was very active in the time of Jesus. But you can also turn over and look in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 28. And that verse reaffirms the need for at least two witnesses before a person could be executed according to Moses' law. Um, and obviously we're not talking about executing the person, but it's a serious thing if you're going to take it to the church. But more practical maybe is Paul's first letter to Timothy, and probably most of you know this in chapter 5, verse 19. Paul's dealing with the very same principle, but as it relates to elders in the church. That's pastoral epistle, and he's dealing with pastoral and elder type things. And in 1 Timothy uh, 5.19, it says, Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If we were to understand witnesses in the way it has sometimes been interpreted, then what does Paul mean? In his instructions to Timothy, he's saying that without another person who is also a witness to the sin of the elder, we're not even to entertain a charge of one person against an elder. So this is the context in which Jesus is speaking. The world in which he lived required at least two eyewitnesses. The other meaning, that is where the people you take along become witnesses of your confrontation, is a foreign concept to the Scriptures. It's not known anywhere in the Scriptures. In fact, I contend that it's an affront to common sense. When we think of witnesses, we don't think of something like that. And one more point. In Leviticus chapter 19... Verses 15 through 18, there are a number of things that are listed there. But among those, we are told not to act unjustly when deciding a case. If the person sinned against uh, has no witnesses and they try to bring it to the church, how could the church justly decide the case? They cannot justly decide the case. And so all of the scriptures seem to just scream, you have to have a witness if you're going to prosecute somebody. I'm doing well on time, so I, I shrunk this little paragraph just in case I didn't have enough time. But the Synod Judicial Commission that I've been on for the last year, for the last 11 months, we, we convicted the man that was in charge on numerous counts. On every single one of the counts that he was convicted, there were at least two witnesses and sometimes three and four. There was written testimony. We had texts. We had emails. We had all kinds of evidence that the man was guilty as charged. And that is what is required. There's one final point I would like to make about this, and that is if we assume that the witnesses are people who know nothing of the sin, um, but are men of good repute and influence, as the commentators say they have to be, those who hold the other view, if we assume that these one or two good people um, know nothing of the sin, but go along to observe or witnessing them, a witness or accusing our brother, there's, a, there's something else that's happened. How, how, how do we take them along? Would you come along with me? You see, Jesus sets the parameter. This thing has to be in private. And yet, I've now told two other people, perhaps, about this matter and to bring them in on the thing. Um, and so there are any number of logical problems with the idea that, that a witness was somebody that didn't know the crime. So Jesus doesn't make it easy for us to confront and accuse our brothers. He doesn't want us to, to run around um, like in the days of the the Cultural Revolution in China where you can convict your neighbor just by saying, I heard them say something. In fact, in contrast, we all know this, Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, to take up our cross and follow him. 
And this is the hard part. This, this could very well mean that the person who sinned against you is going to get away with it. I've seen this passage abused. I've seen where an elder was accused by one person, by one man, who had no witnesses. So what did he do? He took a man with him, a man of good repute, as an observer, as a witness. And it didn't resolve the matter. He didn't have a real witness. And there was much harm done through this. It's also noteworthy to mention here that I've, been, I've seen the guilty, and including this last year, claim that Matthew 18 wasn't followed. Where they say, yeah, I've already confessed, I've already apologized, um, but these people over here, they didn't follow Matthew 18. Well, I suggest to you that they're using Matthew 18 as a club. Um, because there, there is another matter that that person making that charge has not thought about. And that is Matthew 5. How come we don't ever hear anybody say, yeah, Matthew 5? That's the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 23 through 26, in the middle of that chapter, says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So there are two directions that we can travel on this thing. Two directions through the road to repentance, forgiveness, and healing. You can go to your brother who sinned against you and confront them. But if you're the one who sinned, then you need to run. Do not wait. Go to the person that you've sinned against and apologize. We're continuing on in the passage now, if you have at least one eyewitness, or perhaps, as some commentators suggest, and I agree, solid evidence, you can go back to that person, and if they still refuse to listen, they reject your reproaches, then you take it to the elders. Then the elders investigate. We read that in uh, one of the passages that Elder John read for us. And they might even hold a trial, like we held back in Indiana. If the person still refuses to repent, then the elders might censure them if, in fact, that's the case. They're guilty and they haven't repented. Um, and even if they have repented, there might still, a censure might still be in order, our blue book says. And I think that's, that's a sound biblical principle. But here, Jesus actually takes it to the ultimate. He suggests excommunication. So that would be the ultimate. We don't stone people anymore, thankfully. But you are to treat that person at that point as if they're not even part of the family of God. You're to treat that person like a sinful Gentile or a tax collector, the, the two worst people in the Jews' eyes at that point. The next three verses, 18 through 20, I won't go into depth. They almost deserve their own sermon. Um, but it has to do with the authority that Jesus gave the church. Verse 18 is a very close repeat to what was said back in chapter 16, verses 16 through 20, um, where the whole thing with rock, the rock and Peter and all that. Um, in chapter 16, the pronoun, though, is singular. It's the second singular. So he says to Peter, whatever you, singular, bind on earth. But here in this chapter, it's plural. So a better translation, if you ask me, is whatever you guys bind here on earth, because in modern English, whatever you guys is the plural form of you. And that's what it says here. So he's speaking to the church. Verses 19 through 20 are often used as a reference about whatever we pray for. And I think the principle is true. But specifically in this context, it is about... Uh, church discipline. That, that's what this is speaking about. Verses 19 and 20 are about church discipline. But there's a connection, and often the scriptures had these, and we're going to see this again in a minute. 
that numbers, the same exact number will be mentioned. The whole thing about 40 days or 40 years in the wilderness. Um, Elijah traveled 40 days to Mount Sinai. Jesus uh, fasted for 40 days. That 40 days, you see, that thing connects clear through the scriptures. And likewise, Jesus right here, after he had just saying two or three witnesses up in verse 16, he says two or three again here. Why? Well, I think it's not because these are the same people. I think it's simply because there were a plurality of witnesses and there are a plurality of elders. This serious matter of church discipline is not to be handled by a single individual. But if you're sitting there thinking, what if we have no witnesses? What do we do? Someone sinned against you and is continuing to sin. What do you do? Are you stuck? So let's look at verses 21 to the end of the chapter. I would suggest to you, you're not stuck. Jesus shows us how we're not stuck. In verse 21, it appears that Peter understood what Jesus was saying. And so he comes up, bold Peter. It wasn't one of the other disciples. It was, it was Peter. He was their spokesman when they had a hard question for Jesus. Um, in his worldview, he understood what was being said. Witnesses were only eyewitnesses. They were people who saw this thing. So if you had no eyewitnesses, he knew. You had no case to prosecute your brother. So G, or Peter comes up to Jesus and asks him, um, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Well, if, you, if you've ever wondered, where did Jesus... I mean, excuse me. Peter get the number seven. Um, it, it's, it, he might have just pulled it out of his hat, but commentators think that uh, it came from what the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis taught at that time. Um, if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time, he is forgiven. The fourth time, he is not forgiven. So Peter takes the rabbinical number three, he doubles it and adds one to get the perfect Hebrew number, the whole complete number, the number seven. That's, that's he thinks, you know, he's been around Jesus long enough, he knows three is not enough for, for this thing, so he thinks maybe seven will get it there. Um, and Jesus blows him out of the water. He says, no, 70 times seven. At least that's probably what your, your translation says. Um, many of our Bibles will put in a footnote, 77 times, um, and people will say, the Greek is ambiguous. Which is it? Is it 77 or 70 times 7? I mean, really? I mean, if you're in the market and you're bargaining and you say 77 and the guy thinks you mean 70 times 7, that's a problem. So is it really ambiguous? Well, perhaps, because it isn't exactly the normal way in Koine Greek how you would say 77. But there is a broader context that we can look at. There's an Old Testament reference. That speaks to this. Genesis chapter 4. So we're talking way back. Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. The ungodly man, Lamech, has just killed a man. Killed a young man. The man struck him, whether with his hand or with a club, who knows. But Lamech killed him. And what does he do? He comes and he brags to his wife. He says, his wives, he had two wives. I, you know, um, I'm going to take revenge 77 times over. The Hebrew is not ambiguous. It's clear. It's 77 times. The Greek translation of that verse is exactly what is said here in Matthew. There's no question. Jesus is reversing what Lamech was claiming. There's a solid link there with those numbers. So by using the translation, uh, you're translating it 70 times 7, two errors are made. One is rather minor, it's just the actual number. I know commentators are thinking, yeah, that's a lot better. 490 is a lot better than 77, but they miss the theological point when they do that. So Jesus is reversing the radical standard that Lamech had set. We're not only prohibited from taking revenge, we are to forgive our brother as many times as that evil Lamech was going to take vengeance. 
So, forgiveness. Regarding forgiveness, you know in the Scriptures, you know the Scriptures well, um, there are many direct commands to forgive. And one that our kids memorize, and maybe some of you have as well, is Colossians 3, verses 13 through 15, where it says, Since God chose you to be the holy people whom he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You must make allowance for each other's faults and forgive the person who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And the most important piece of clothing you must wear is love. Love is what binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. So are we stuck if we have no witnesses? We're not stuck. We're to forgive. But that is really the hard part. That is really hard. As I mentioned earlier, it will cost you something. If you're going to forgive somebody, it's going to cost you. And I have to admit, there have been many times in my life that I don't want to forgive. It seems unfair that the other person is just going to get away with it. So Jesus tells us a story to get the point across. And read the story already. You know the story. This profligate servant begs the king not to punish him. I think I missed a paragraph. He, he was in debt. Oh, yes, right at the end of that paragraph. Excuse me. Um, he was in debt. It was 10,000 talents. What's 10,000 talents? Well, one talent was equal to 6,000 denarii. What's a denarii? Denarius is one day's wage. 6,000 times 10,000 is 60 million days' wages. That's a shocking number, really. Um, I made a brief estimate, did some math, and it comes out to almost a quarter million years of work to pay this thing off. I mean, that's just absurd. So is this parable actually about uh, this guy getting in debt that much? No, it's not. What happens? Well, the profligate servant begs the king to not punish him. So the king forgives him the whole debt. Notice something here? When the king forgave that man, it cost the king 10,000 talents. It cost the king dearly. It was very expensive for him to clear the debt. And this is the good news, isn't it? The clearing of our debt to God costs God dearly. Our forgiveness is blood-bought with the lifeblood of the one and only begotten Son of the Father. It is the only thing that could clear our eternal debt. It costs God dearly. Now what should the reckless servant do? What should have been his response? I've tried to imagine what I would do. I mean, if it, it really was in debt millions and millions of dollars. Um, because this creditor not only cleared the debt, he restored the man's credit rating to 800 plus. I mean, he is, he is set to go again. What would you do? Well, I would hope that I would invite all of you, all my friends and family, and we would have a party. Go into debt a little again, but it would be worth it, right? <laughs> but what did this servant do? He did what I think many of us do. He went out and found a fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii, 100 days wages. Not a quarter of a million years wages, but 100 days wages. Not even half a year wages. He grabbed him and started choking him. He says, paid me back what you owe me. Wait, what? He'd just been forgiven almost a quarter of a million years of wages. And he is now choking his fellow servant for 100 days wages. Not even a half a year. In fact, it is what I have done too many times. I'm just like that evil servant. I have not been quick to forgive my brothers and sisters who have sinned against me. Their sin against me is nothing compared to the infinite sum I owed the Lord. But I'm required to forgive them. Moreover, I should be quick to forgive, just as Christ has forgiven me. How about you? 
All of you who have been forgiven by the precious blood of Jesus, are you quick to forgive? Is that your natural response? Or do you harbor bitterness? Do you struggle to forgive someone? Well, what's the end of this parable? It is what we would expect, actually. The wicked, profligate, and unforgiving servant was sentenced to an eternity of torture. Now, if you're reading the ESV, you're going to say, Pinson, where did you get the word torture? The Greek word there that's translated in the ESV as jailer is not the normal New Testament word for jailer, the guy who locks the door and guards the door. The word actually means torturer. He has handed you over to be tortured, and he will not get out. So this is an eternal torture. This is a very vivid ending. In fact, Jesus then finishes by giving us a warning. A warning. So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So what's the point? Well, I think the correct understanding of Matthew 18, if we get that understanding of what Matthew 18 is saying, we'll be more like Jesus. We will want to forgive our brothers and sisters, and we will remember that we have been forgiven an infinite debt. And in comparison, our puny little sins that we sin against one another are nothing, and we will be desirous to forgive that other person quickly. And if I am quick to forgive and slow to confront my brother, knowing that unless I have a true witness to the sin, I can't bring any charges against him anyway, won't I be better off overall if I simply forgive? Matthew 18 is a sermon on sin, but it is also a sermon about forgiveness. Three short verses in the middle seem to be what always gets referenced. Let's, Let's think about the whole chapter. Undoubtedly, forgiveness is difficult, yet our attitude is to be that of Christ who humbled himself and did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Philippians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. We are to be childlike, and this includes the humility to forgive one another. We are called to put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. This is the message Jesus taught us in the unforgiving servant parable. God forgave his children an infinite debt. Our debt was against an infinite, the sin against God is an infinite, against an infinite eternal God. Therefore, that naturally makes our sin infinite and eternal. If you, if you, children, if you've ever wondered, why would our sin be eternal debt? Why would it be an infinite debt? It's because of whom we sinned against. And this very principle of God forgiving our sins, these massive sins by the blood of Jesus, um, that, that is the gospel message, isn't it? We've been forgiven this crazy death, and so we are to forgive too. And though Jesus does give us these verses, 15 through 17, and it's, so it's true that we need to confront sin when necessary, but we're also to forgive. Jesus tells us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. The world does not forgive, but God does. And if we want to be like him, then we need to be people who forgive and forgive quickly. We don't need to wait for our brother to come and confront us. We can go to him and save that trouble. And we're to pursue peace with our brothers. Probably most of the adults in this room have heard the story of Corey Kenboom's encounter with a guard from Robin's concentration camp. Children, Corrie Ten Boom was a Dutch woman who, in World War II, her family was hiding Jewish people from the Nazis and saving them inside their house. And they saved a lot of people. And they were part of the Underground Railroad, as it were, just like we had in the United States, but this was saving Jews from the Nazis. Well, before the end of the war, they were found out. They were arrested. Her father died very quickly in prison. She and her sister 
were moved from different prisons and she ended up in Ravensbrück. Um, after the war, she was speaking. She was in Germany speaking. And she did this quite a bit, I guess. Um, and she was in the basement of a building and she finished and she said, in those days, few people would raise their hand and ask her a question. And so people got up and started shuffling out. And there was a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. And she says, it was 1947 right then, and I had come from Holland to a defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, and the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with skull and crossbones. That's the Nazi symbol, kids. This was one of the guards of that terrible place. She recognized him. She knew who he was. He'd been particularly cruel to Corey's sister who had died just days before Corey was released. And interestingly, she was released, it turns out, on the clerical error. Within a week or two after she was released, her whole cell block was gassed to death. God plucked her out of there. So this man came up to her. He had been a guard in this labor camp for women. And he told her, I have become a Christian since the end of the war. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Will you forgive me? She said, I stood there. I who sinned every day had to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death by asking? She said it could not have been many seconds that he stood there with his hand held out. But it seemed like hours to me. So she said, I prayed, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. She said, so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced in down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then the healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being. And she said, I forgive you, brother. With all my heart. I practiced this a lot and didn't cry a single time. It's a powerful story. This is the gospel. There is great reward for us when we forgive our brother and sister. Thinking about this, talking to Jackie, why? Do the scriptures teach us that? Yes, they do. Obedience. Jesus tells us to do it. When we obey, we are blessed. And great, great relief and great comfort and great blessing come when we forgive our brother or sister in Christ, even if they haven't repented. Living obedient comes with blessings. Forgiveness is also a means to reconciliation. As we live in harmony, there is joy. As Psalm 133 verse 1 says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. We are living, excuse me, we are loving our brother when we forgive him. We are giving something up. It costs us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 8 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer is that you would teach us to forgive. You have forgiven us a debt that we can't even comprehend. And yet daily we still sin against you and you have forgiven us. And so I pray that you would teach us to run to our fellow Christian, or our brother or sister, and repent of our sin 
before they haul us off to the court. I pray that you would teach us to repent if we're confronted. When a brother or sister comes to us, I pray that you would enable us to respond in a right and godly way. Father, our prayer is that you would make us little ones in your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.